0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website.
1: Our speaker this evening was ordained in 1996 when he finished his Master of Arts degree at the Angelicum in Rome. He has served various assignments for the Diocese of Arlington, at St. Bernadette's in Springfield, St. Patrick's in Fredericksburg, St. Rita's in Alexandria, and as a pastor of St. John the Beloved in McLean. He currently serves as the Episcopal Vicar for Clergy. He told me to cut it off at that point, okay? (laughs) Good. Good. (laughs) But (laughs) he did want me to mention uh, a book was released by him in 2017, uh, That Nothing May Be Lost. Please welcome me in joining Reverend Scalia, thank you.
2: Thank you, Andy, it's good to be with you. And uh, since we have to be out by eight, um, I'm just gonna be real quick here, okay. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And one ran, and filling a sponge full of vinegar, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last breath. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that he had thus breathed his last he said truly this man was a son of God the title for this evening's talk is my God my God the temptation in the desert and the cross of Christ Uh, and it really embraces the two poles uh, of Lent the beginning and the end on the first Sunday of Lent, we always hear about our Lord's temptation in the desert. Uh, and the last Sunday or of Lent, Palm Sunday, we always hear, of course, of our Lord's passion. And then again on Good Friday. And between these two events, our Lord's temptation and then his crucifixion, is the entirety of his public life and all of Lent. And their relation to one another may not be immediately clear to us, And bringing them together in this way is a very good way to prepare for Holy Week. And so I hope this not just to be sort of a talk or a lecture, but also uh, I hope to give you some thoughts to bring into Holy Week with you uh, to make for uh, a better week, accompanying our Lord in his passion and death. The Gospel of Luke gives us a hint about the connection of our Lord's temptation and his crucifixion at the conclusion of the temptations st. Luke tells us that the devil left him until an opportune time sort of an ominous line there in Luke's gospel that the devil doesn't depart completely but he seems to be always lurking in the background and waiting for an opportune time to come and uh, give it another try Another connection between these two events is the emphasis on our Lord's obedience. And obedience, a very unpopular word uh, in our culture, uh, and it's never really been popular for fallen man. Uh, But we, we heard about it just this morning, how central our Lord's obedience is in our salvation. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Therefore, it is because of our Lord's obedience unto death, Which sort of undoes the disobedience of Adam because of that obedience to the Father's will and offering his life. Therefore, he is raised. That's from Philippians chapter 2. And then Paul, writing to the Romans, says For as one man's disobedience, as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And there he is rather explicitly comparing Adam's disobedience to the obedience of our Lord and then in the letter to the Hebrews what do we hear about our Lord coming into the world says lo I have come to do thy will O God that is what he speaks in effect as he enters the world and later in Hebrews 10 by that will by his will, by that, that offering of his will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It is the obedience of Christ, manifested most especially on the cross, that redeems us. And we'll see how both the temptation and our Lord's passion reveal that obedience. Finally, and most importantly, both events give us an account of our Lord's suffering the suffering of the temptation and the suffering uh, in his passion and crucifixion. Which brings us to an important consideration. How is it possible for him to suffer at all? He is God, after all. And we know, of course, that he suffers in his passion, but he's God. So is he really suffering? Uh, And there, of course, have been some heresies that say, well, actually, no. Docetism would say that he's just sort of make-believe. He's just sort of pretending to go through these things. A simple and, unfortunately, a simplistic answer would be he suffers simply because he is human. And therefore, he, he suffers just like the rest of us, which is true in one sense, but in another sense, it's, it's not true. He takes on sufferings because of his participation in our human nature, but he doesn't suffer exactly as we do. In some regards, he suffers more and it's a simplistic solution because it fails to take seriously our Lord's perfect humanity or his sacred humanity which is a consequence of the incarnation his human nature is to be the instrument of salvation united perfectly with uh, the divine nature of the second person of the Trinity therefore his human nature is perfect meaning without sin and without any of the wounds of sin that we suffer And his human nature enjoys this fullness of grace and this anointing of the Holy Spirit that that brings about a a great, not just a, a perfection, but a great holiness. One of the mistakes that the modern world makes, and it's not a mistake that the ancients made, but in the modern world, we tend to project upon our Lord our own foibles and quirks. And we think that because he is human, that must mean that he's kind of got the, the flaws like, like we have. That is a grave error. Our Lord's sacred humanity is flawless. There's no wound or no division uh, within him. We suffer a division between our intellect and our will. Even when we know what we ought to do, we don't always choose that thing. We suffer division between our, our body and soul. Even when we know we ought to get out of bed and go to work or go to mass, we don't, or we don't want to anyway. Uh, and we suffer a disharmony in our emotions, or sort of going off the rails, running, like, running around the house like a bunch of rotten children. Right? <laughs> our Lord suffered none of, these, of this disharmony, none of these divisions. His body and soul enjoy a perfect harmony, his intellect, his will, his passions. Everything in him is as it should be, uh, according to human nature. When he willed something, he willed it perfectly, not halfway the way we do. Uh, He saw things clearly, not indistinctly the way we do. Uh, His capacity to see things and to see persons was not compromised by any selfishness. And his passions were perfectly ordered. So when our Lord was angry, He was angry for the right reason and in the right way. When he was sad, he was sad for the right reason and in the right way. And when he was joyful and so on with all of the passions, they realize a perfection in him and a completeness. So how is it that he suffered? We need to understand this. Jesus suffered because he allowed it. It was not inevitable to him. He allowed the suffering to enter upon both his soul, first of all his soul, and then his body. He does not suffer in his divine nature. That's impossible. But he does suffer in his human body and, as we will see, in his human soul. But he suffers because he wills it. So let's first uh, look at the temptation in the desert. And actually, there's a bonus tonight, Okay. So you thought it was just going to be the temptation in the desert and then the, the crucifixion. And, but no, you're going to get the agony in the garden as well, okay? <laughs> and a free dinner okay, for some of you. <laughs> so the first account of our Lord's suffering is the temptation in the desert. Well, to understand the temptation, actually, we need to step back a little more and think about our Lord's baptism. We typically see these two events as, as separate things because the feasts are, are different, right? We have the back, baptism of the Lord is in January and then the temptation of the Lord is first Sunday of Lent and those are separate. But really, they're right next to each other in the Gospels and they, they really are meant to uh, be connected. We need to understand our Lord's temptation and by extension, his agony in the garden and his passion in light of his baptism and vice versa. So baptism was a ceremony in which a person was submerged but full underwater in repentance for sins. And I'm talking about the pre-Christian ceremony of baptism, which was not a sacrament but a ceremony, what we would call sacramental probably. And notice the two essential elements, submersion and sin. Jesus comes and he's baptized by John is not baptized for his own sins but to manifest and to reveal his solidarity with sinners and in doing that he is submerged he is buried under the water the church fathers would speak of his baptism as a liquid tomb going down into the waters he is buried on account of our sins, on account of his identification with us sinners. And some Christian iconography depicts this very powerfully. Uh, The artist uh, Rubnik, who did the uh, mosaics over the John Paul II shrine, uh, the depiction of the baptism of the Lord, it's very deliberate. If you look at it, it is as though our Lord has been buried under the water. He even has sort of the posture of someone in a tomb. This is deliberate, and it is accurate our Lord's baptism is already pointing to his death and burial. So at his baptism, he unites himself with us sinners and is buried on our behalf. And immediately after that, he goes into the desert. Why? To be tempted by the devil. Now, we have to put out of our mind this thought that our Lord was just on retreat, right? 40 days and the devil came along and sort of ruined it you know it was a nice desert experience until the you know the devil came Um, no his baptism reveals his solidarity with us sinners his temptation in the desert is a living out of that solidarity with us he goes out there because now he's identified with us he goes out there to experience temptation as we experience temptation. Pope Benedict uh, calls the the temptations a descent into the perils besetting mankind. And so in the desert, he experiences, uh, in summary form, every temptation that can come against us. He experiences them on our behalf, but not exactly the same way we do. What does it mean for our Lord to be tempted? How is it possible? To be tempted means to suffer a division uh, within us, or at least sort of the beginning or the attempt for that division to be created within us between our will and God's. That's what temptation is, to divide us from what we know we ought to do and what we actually do. Of the essence of temptation is division. For him, temptations can only arise from the outside. Now, we, we know that we can be tempted without anything from the outside uh, introducing thoughts or images, words into, our, into our, our soul. Now, because we are already somewhat divided within ourselves, because we already have these wounds of sin that we, that we suffer, we can be tempted interiorly without any outside suggestion it doesn't make it any easier that the devil is always giving outside suggestions right and your friends during Lent saying well why don't you just have a drink you know when you gave it up for Lent or have some dessert those are all trying to divide you right uh, from your Lenten resolutions our Lord's temptations are different they don't come from within him that would be impossible Because his human nature and his divine are perfectly united. His human nature enjoys perfect integrity. There's no place for division there. So the temptations have to come from the outside. And he suffers them. He allows himself to be tempted. You know, when our Lord goes out into the desert, he's going out there precisely to sort of put a stick in the devil's nose right there. He's going to pick a fight. That's why he goes out there. He goes out there in order to the, you know, basically confront the devil and undergo these temptations on our behalf. So what was the division that the devil is trying to introduce? Exactly how is he trying to tempt our Lord? What's the goal? Catechism summarizes it beautifully. Satan tempts him three times, seeking to compromise his filial attitude toward God so here's the son of God and the devil wants to compromise the devotion of the son to the father that's his end goal each temptation has that purpose and that is the suffering that our Lord allows himself to endure these these awful suggestions these terrible proposals that would detach him from his own father so notice how the tempter begins if you are the son of God his sonship his filial attitude toward God that is the issue from the start if you are the son of God command these stones to become loaves of bread satisfy physical hunger worldly wants that is what the devil is getting at focus on the material and the physical needs not the spiritual. The second temptation has the same beginning. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Throw yourself down from the temple. For it is written, he will give his angels charge of you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In other words, do this and force your father to help you. Make him prove himself. And finally, and the most powerful, haunting temptation, all of these I will give you, all these kingdoms, if you will fall down and worship me. If you will settle for worldly power and just forget about that whole stuff about eternity and the kingdom of God. Just settle for these kingdoms here. And every single temptation is trying to cut short that filial attitude to the Father, which is expressed in obedience in going to the cross. Those are the temptations notice how our Lord triumphs over these it's not by clever debating it's not by a a show of his almighty power obedience to each temptation our Lord quotes a passage from Scripture and he doesn't just quote it as a clever response but he quotes it because he trusts it to be true his human nature he is relying on this He is being obedient to what the Father has given him in those words. Temptation is overcome not by reason or power, but by obedience. And notice that our Lord will encounter these temptations throughout his public ministry. Moses gave our fathers manna in the desert. What do you do? That was one of, the, one of the lines of the crowd to our Lord in Capernaum. Uh, the crowds demand a sign. Give us a sign. Same way the devil was saying, just throw yourself down from here. Do a miracle. The demand for earthly power. After the multiplication of the loaves and fish, what happens? They want to come and make him king. And we see these especially during his passion. In the passion narrative of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I mean, how many times do we hear the question, are you a king? You are the king of the Jews, then. Always thinking and sort of putting before him worldly power. Prophesy. Save yourself. Let God deliver him. Do a miracle. There are the temptations, finding voice again during our Lord's Passion. And Herod, Herod, why did Herod want to see our Lord? He wanted to see a miracle. That is the beginning of our Lord's public ministry. The temptations and he undergoes them on our behalf to give us an example and to triumph over them for us so that more obedient we are to him the more we triumph over our own temptations fast forward three years to the end of our Lord's public life by this point in the narrative we have a better sense that our Lord suffers only because he allows it Over the course of his public life, he has shown by word and by deed that he is entirely in control. John 10, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. He is entirely in control. And then a scene that I like a lot, Luke 13, There's a sort of it's a flash of impatience, if, if you will. Not that our Lord can be impatient, but you know a little bit of anger there. You go and tell that fox that like, he's just kind of tired of this because he is in control and he doesn't want anybody else thinking that they have the, the power to take his life from him without his permission. Early in his public life when he visits Nazareth. And this is a warning to any priest ever assigned to his home parish. Um, <laughs> and they rose up and put him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down headlong. But passing through the midst of them, he went away. Sort of this miraculous just going through the crowd. No explanation of really why they were unable to kill him. And then John chapter seven, just had this recently daily mass. So they sought to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. And that's a theme throughout John's gospel, our Lord's hour, and he is in control of that. It is the agony in the garden that begins his passion. We call it the agony in the garden. It's entirely an interior agony consisting of his human will, being perfectly conformed to his divine in obedience to the Father. His human will understandably draws back not just from death, but from all of the torture and the brutality that he is to suffer. And not only that, but because he sees all of the sins that will rush upon him, the consequence of every sin being placed on him, his human will naturally, Draws back from that. And so the agony is this ascent of the human will. Not that it is in opposition, but that it needs to give a full yes to this. And so understandably, he says to them, as they arrive at the garden, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And he prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. understandable but because his human will is perfectly united with his divine will he continues nevertheless not as I will but as thou wilt this is the opportune time this is the moment that the devil's been waiting for and at this moment with those words nevertheless not as I will but as thou wilt with that he opens himself up To suffering all the consequences of sin and allows all of that horror to rush in upon him. Cardinal Newman is a great guide for this scene and to understand what happens in our Lord's soul. And I have a handout. It is from Newman's meditation, The Mental Sufferings of Our Lord. You can find it online, the full thing. In another piece Newman describes the scene in the garden in this way he says that our Lord removed by his own act the prohibition which kept Satan from him and opened the door to the agitations of his human heart some of the parts of the uh meditation on our Lord's mental sufferings are, are worth quoting and this is Newman describing what happens in the garden and what kind of suffering our Lord is enduring our Lord said now I will begin to suffer and he did begin his composure is but the proof how entirely he governed his own mind he drew back at the proper moment the bolts and fastenings and opened the gates and the floods fell right upon his soul in all their fullness you see how deliberately he acts he comes to a certain spot and then giving the word of command and withdrawing the support of the Godhead from his soul, distress, terror, and dejection at once rush in upon it. He put himself within its reach, within the devil's reach. Sin could not touch his divine majesty, but it could assail him in that way in which he allowed himself to be assailed, that is, through the medium of his humanity. There then, in that most awful hour, knelt the Savior of the world, putting off the defenses of his divinity, dismissing his reluctant angels, who in myriads were ready at his call, and opening his arms, bearing his breast, sinless as he was, to the assault of his foe, of a foe whose breath was a pestilence and whose embrace was an agony. There he knelt motionless and still while the vile and horrible fiend clad his spirit in a robe steeped in all that is hateful and heinous in human crime which clung close round his heart and filled his conscience and found its way into every sense and pore of his mind and spread over him a moral leprosy till he almost felt himself to be that which he could never be. That is why a Lord begins to sweat blood. Newman says in the same meditation that his passion has begun from within when we think of our Lord's suffering we think of, of what's being done to him from the outside Newman makes the point that our Lord's passion really begins from the inside when he allows himself to be assaulted by the devil and even to as Newman puts it to become that which which he hates most to become as St. Saint, Saint Paul says to become sin. And from that point on, he is simply suffering uh, what the devil wants to do to him. Which brings us to the the third moment, which is our Lord's crucifixion and the cry from the cross. The interior agony began in the garden, and it was manifested in his physical sufferings, and it's given full voice, really, in those words from the cross that we hear in today's gospel, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They sound like words of despair. They're certainly words of of great sorrow and of pain. But they sound like words of despair, too. Like the voice of one who is convinced that God has abandoned him. And some think that Jesus Christ did precisely that. That at the last moment, he doubted his father. That at the last moment, that compromising of his filial attitude to God was accomplished. That at the last moment, he failed. Or, as one writer puts it, he suffered a collapse of everything else that he had done. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How are we to understand these words? We have to be careful, on one hand, of falling into the trap of thinking that our Lord is placing himself uh, with the damned, which is impossible. That our Lord sinned at that moment. He despaired, which is impossible. If that is possible, then he's not really God. But at the same time, we don't want to trivialize the suffering. We want to appreciate it for what it is. The Catechism, paragraph 603, says, Jesus did not experience reprobation as if he himself had sinned, He has not incurred any guilt because he has not done anything wrong. He suffers the consequences of sin. But in the redeeming love that always united him to the Father, he assumed us in the state of our waywardness of sin to the point that he could say in our name from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Having thus established him in solidarity with us sinners, God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. So that we might be reconciled to God by the death of his son let's place these words of our Lord in context he's quoting a psalm he's quoting Psalm 22 it's the first words of the psalm and the custom in ancient Israel in praying a psalm was if you said the first part you intended the entire psalm this should be familiar to every Catholic when you go to confession and the pra- priest says, say three Hail Marys, he means the entire prayer. <laughs> okay. Okay. You know, the children in Fatima tried to get away with praying the rosary by just saying, Hail Mary, Hail Mary, Hail Mary. It, it's one of, the, one of the most endearing you know, little details of, of that story. Our Lady, you know, corrected them. Um. But, you know, think of the priest. at at mass I believe in one God and then we all join in right or you know Gloria on a Chelsea he he intones it and then from that is intended the entire thing we even refer to the prayers just by their first word or words the our father the Hail Mary the Gloria the Sanctus so this is familiar to us our Lord doesn't mean just these words that he speaks this is the high priest praying from the cross In the name of all humanity he intends the entire psalm which is why the psalm for today at mass was psalm 22 so that you could put into context the words that you would hear during our lord's passion and before looking at the psalm itself let's make note of another aspect of the psalms in general and that is the two dominant themes that they have of lament and praise. These are the principal themes we fi- find throughout the psalms. And Pope Benedict he reflects beautifully on this on how these are inseparable. He says, "These are two related dimensions that are almost inseparable since supplication is motivated by the certainty that God will respond, thus opening a person to praise and thanksgiving." And praise and thanksgiving stem from the experience of salvation received. This implies the need for help, which a supplication expresses. And really, any reflection on human life or the life of prayer knows this: at certain times it's lament, <laughs> and other times it's praise. One never really excludes the other; they depend on one another. And this is especially the case with Psalm 22. And so, this would make great prayer at the end of the day today or perhaps every day of holy week my god my god why have you forsaken me why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning oh my god i cry by day but you do not answer and by night but find no rest anyone who has prayed to god in need and not heard or received an answer immediately can identify with these words and what a great consolation to know that christ himself prayed them and then the tone changes. Yet you, alone, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. So he recalls what he had heard from his fathers about how the Lord of Israel had delivered them. And that's what we should do. When it feels like our prayers aren't being answered, we wonder if he's there, calling to mind the events of salvation. And then he turns back to lament. But I am a worm and no man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He committed his cause to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And if these words sound familiar, it's because it's precisely what happens to our Lord on the cross. They walk by him and they wag their heads at him. And they scoff and scorn him, telling him to call upon the Lord. Our Lord is fulfilling this Psalm verse 14 I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint my heart is like wax it is melted within my breast my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws you lay me in the dust of death yes dogs are round about me a company of evildoers encircle me they have pierced my hands and feet I can count all my bones They stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." Our Lord is fulfilling this psalm entirely. When he speaks the words from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's pointing everyone to this psalm. And not just to the lament in the psalm, but what follows. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my help, hasten to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, my afflicted soul from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you sons of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you sons of Israel." for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Does that sound like words of despair? (laughs) No. Our Lord is showing those witnesses at his crucifixion and us, both his experience of human sorrow and that experience of even, even feeling as though God had forsaken him but also teaching them the capacity to hope and to trust in the midst of all of that. And as Pope Benedict again points out, the Psalms had a corporate meaning. It it wasn't just one person. I mean, they're intensely personal at times. That one clearly is. But over the centuries, they would take on a corporate meaning. In other words, it would be all of Israel giving voice to the Psalm. It wasn't just confined to one person. And that's the way we do it today as well. And so it is our Lord giving voice, not just of his own suffering and hope, but also of of yours, of your suffering, of your feeling of dereliction by God, of your, your feeling of abandonment and being forsaken, and invites you to join him in giving voice to hope as well. But none of this should be taken to mean that he did not suffer, just because he persevered in hope, he did still suffer. Humanly speaking, he has no sense of our Lord's presence, of, of his Father's presence. He allows himself that. Now, this is a tricky thing because he still, in the higher part of his soul, as Saint Thomas would would say, is he still has the beatific vision? He he still looks upon his Father. But in the lower part of his soul, in, in his passions, and his feelings, in his psyche, he feels that desolation. And he allows himself to. So there is this tension of expectation, of, of hoping in his father's deliverance, but also of agony in, in the present moment. He allows all of that to pierce him. Just as physically he opened his arms and allowed this, the lance to pierce his side, so he Opens, in effect, his sacred heart and allows these sufferings to to pierce him And we can suffer something analogous It is possible to have faith and, 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 and hope And at the same time be in the midst of suffering Saint Therese on her deathbed was tempted by serious doubts but persevered in hope uh, Did she really suffer those? Yes, she did really suffer them, but did not give in to them Uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta, St. Teresa's namesake, for decades had no no sense of God's presence or love, no sense that he was there at all. Did she really suffer that? Yes, absolutely. You read her writings, it's very clear that there is an agony in her soul. But still, in the higher part of her soul, she is trusting. Now, that's a weak analogy. uh, Perhaps even weaker is something as simple as is when you go to console someone, go to visit someone who's in the hospital. And even though that person continues to suffer physically, there is some consolation in your, your being there. So these things can, can coexist. Which brings us, again, to the purpose of his experience all of this. But in speaking of these analogies, it reminds us again that he experiences the temptation in the desert, the agony in the garden, and that great suffering on the cross not for his sake but for ours and that it sort of enhances the suffering and his perfect human humanity enhances the suffering as well some of you have heard me make the analogy before you know somebody who has who has um, a great ear for music can appreciate good music better than i can but they also suffer bad music (laughs) more than i do (laughs) sounds fun to me right (laughs) precisely because our Lord saw things so clearly. Precisely because he saw the Father, he was also aware of how abhorrent human evil is. Because he possessed the beatific vision, receiving the consequences of sin was even more difficult for him, not less. He experiences this so that he would experience the full extent of man's feeling of abandonment. But without giving to it he goes to to the extreme of human suffering not just physically but mentally and spiritually and this is just an extension of his baptism remember His baptism he's buried there at the beginning he descended and in his passion he continues to descend even to the lowest point where he can feel with those who feel abandoned by God sense as well so for this week i hope the foregoing has given you some sense of the extraordinary love with which god loves you of our lord's affection for you with his sacred heart and at the same time uh, it should prompt us to thoughts of repentance and expressing our sorrow for sin so let me conclude with some thoughts for holy week which is ultimately a, a week of repentance And sorrow for sin first the temptation in the desert it's true our Lord suffered those temptations for our sake he was in our place as the tempter came against him but in another sense we are the tempter we demand if you are the son of God we withhold our belief until you know turn turn these stones into bread give me those material things I want We are the ones who say well if you are the son of god prove it throw yourself down let me work a miracle for me i won't believe until you do we put god on trial as did the devil the sanhedrin and pontius pilate and we prefer that he would just take up an earthly rule just rule over us just establish your kingdom here so that i don't have to go through the effort rule over me in in an earthly manner so that I can be off the hook and just be a slave and consider how we have contributed to that interior passion that our Lord suffers he suffers first in the garden at that moment he opens his soul his sacred heart to the consequence of every sin and all sins for the sin of Adam and Eve and for the sin few me Everything, every evil that we've committed, the consequence rushes in on him at that moment. And most of all on the cross, he suffers abandonment for our sake. How have we abandoned him? A nice corollary to the cry, my God, my God, why, have, why hast thou forsaken me, is the words we hear from him in John's gospel, I thirst. He gives this cry of abandonment. Have we abandoned him? Have we left him alone there? Failed to pray, failed to seek him, failed to grieve for our sins, failed to confess. And each of these moments, and this is the beauty of Holy Week and of our faith, each of these moments has eternal significance because it is the eternal God who is present and suffering in each of these moments. The temptation in the desert, the agony in the garden, the cry from the cross... These don't remain fixed in time because the one who suffers them is eternal, which means that when we, in prayer, place ourselves with him in the garden, it's not make-believe, but we really can go to him there and there express to him our sorrow and there watch with him as he commanded us. And we can go to him at the cross and bring him consolation by thanking him By expressing our love for him by expressing our sorrow for sin this in the end is what he desires Peter uh, is a great example of well of us it's why he's so endearing in the garden he's ready to go into battle draws a sword cuts off someone's ear and then in the courtyard of the high priest he denies our Lord three times he goes from one extreme to the other. And in the end, what does our Lord want from Peter? He just wants Peter to be with him, to accompany him, to be for, sorry for his sin, to console him. We don't think that's very much because we don't believe enough. And so for Holy Week, let's ask for the grace to believe more in our capacity to go, him, go to him in those moments, to thank him for what he suffered for our sake, to ask forgiveness for our sins, to console him by expressing our love for him. We adore you, Christ, and we praise you, Amen. for by your holy cross, thou hast redeemed the world. Our Lady of sorrows, pray. pray for us, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you so much, Father. So much stuff to reflect upon as we enter into Holy Week and contemplate our Lord's Passion. Okay, questions and answers. Who's first?
2: Father, is there a way or can we even today comfort Christ in his Passion of 2,000 years ago? Yes. And how? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- this is you know what I hope to communicate by, by saying that all of these things have eternal significance Be- because... It's the eternal God who, who is active in, in each of them. And um, when you go before the Blessed Sacrament, who are you speaking to? You're, you're speaking to the one the crucified one and the risen one. He does not set aside anything that he's done. I mean, this is what we believe in our faith, is that every moment of his life is made present to us. Uh, this is why we celebrate the feasts. Uh, on, on Christmas, we're not just remembering Christmas. In a sense, Christmas is made present. We don't just remember the transfiguration, but, in, in a sense, you know, we're, we're there. Uh, this is what we mean by the sacred mysteries, is that it does put us in, co- in touch with, with our Lord, not just as, as he is in heaven, but by extension to, to every moment on, on earth. You know, the manger, or the, the crash uh, in going to adore, adore our, our Lord in the manger, that's, that's not just a kind of a pious thing that's nice for kids to do, but there's real, actually, the- theological meaning there and this is the reason for pilgrimages to the holy land going to bethlehem still has meaning not just because of what happened there two thousand years ago but because god has never you know he's never repented of it (laughs) you know it's still in a sense present to him and so we can be present uh every moment can be present so and and we need to to trust that that is that is the truth of of the the second person of the trinity
1: Father Scalia, um, my question is about your comment on the certainty Jesus seemed to approach statements like my hour is not yet come with. Um, given that most of his ministry seemed to be very marked by that, like he didn't hurry to Lazarus, and he knew he would be okay showing up days later. But the notable lack of that at the beginning and the end of his ministry and the nature of suffering you were talking about, have either the church fathers or modern theologians, or do you have a certain take on responding to his mother when he says, woman, my time has not yet come, and yet he proceeds in Cana to turn the water into wine for his first miracle, and then also seems to genuinely ask, my God, my God, why have you forsaken
2: me? First, that, that certainty is, is very early on in his ministry. And uh, the wedding feast at Cana is very early on in, in John's Gospel. It's his, it's his first miracle. And so already then, he is speaking of his hour. Now, let me take, take up that, that, point, that question about, yeah, what happens there? Have you ever tried to set God's schedule? <laughs> Doesn't work, does it, you know? That whole scene speaks of Mary's extraordinary privilege woman how does this concern of yours involve me my hour has not yet come of course he's referring to his passion and she in effect sets it in motion turning to the servants as servers and say do whatever he tells you she sets everything in motion it's, it's really at her not even at her bidding just at her observation that he works his first miracle which sets everything in motion bringing him to the cross To my mind, that scene speaks of Mary's extraordinary power uh, and prerogative. Uh, No one else in scripture is allowed to set God's schedule. In fact, uh, somebody like uh, poor Saul. You know, Saul loses a kingship in part because, (laughs) uh, well, Samuel said he was going to be here. Uh, yesterday he's still not here to offer sacrifice my army is deserting I gotta get this show on the road and so he starts sacrificing and Samuel shows up Goes, what are you doing boom Saul's punished for that (laughs) Uh, Abraham tries to take things and you know listen child of the promise is not coming along you know uh, God helps those who help themselves no (laughs) (laughs) didn't work out well Um, and uh, but Mary is unique in this that uh she sets everything in motion and the last question about his his cry my god my god why have you forsaken me two things uh, if, if you could just boil it down to two points yes he does experience this feeling in his psyche in, in what we call the lower part of his soul the, the feeling that those people may have that god has abandoned them he does not consent to that he does not deliberately choose to despair that's the first point. The second is that we need to understand that, that line as intoning the entire Psalm. So it's not just a cry of desolation, but it includes also with it, uh, words of, of great hope and expectation. Uh, so I'm gonna piggyback on the gentleman's
0: questions. It's more like, it's a question about like, prove it, dot, 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 you know, uh, because you mentioned the three temptations of Jesus, but you didn't mention who took notes about... The, the temptations. Of The temptations, and yeah. then the gospels written four centuries later?
2: No, no. Oh, no. how, like, how, no, no. how do we... Maybe, where, maybe, where? maybe 20, 30 years later.
0: Oh, so, oh, okay, so no one there, and 20 years
2: later... Written so, down, right. Right,
0: so I'm just, I'm just trying to see, like, how the, our, since it's Catholic culture... Yeah. How, how do we carry on that to now we know, or, or now that we understand, three temptations? Uh,
2: how, do we, how do we know about them at all, right? Exactly. Uh, one of the most maddening uh, lines in Scripture is in the, the account of the, the walk to Emmaus, when our Lord appears to the, to the disciples, and he... He gives them a, a Bible lesson, basically. He, he explains to them everything that, that referred to him in Scripture. Like, did anybody write anything down? Right. So, <laughs> so um, But our Lord, risen from the dead, remains with his apostles for 40 years. Or for, for 40 days. <laughs> right. 40 days. And, uh, and during that time, he is teaching them. And he is revealing uh, things to them. And, and so how would we have that information except from our Lord himself? Hi, Father. The question is, how how do you best minister someone who feels unloved and alone and suffering greatly? For some reason we keep this a secret in our faith, is is that we have really the only answer to human suffering. Uh, Let's first distinguish a mystery from a problem. Suffering is not a problem it's a mystery when we see it as a problem we're gonna to try to solve the problem and there are a whole lot of bad solutions that just make the problem worse socialism for example well-intentioned you know at least hey let's eliminate suffering of inequity right you know at least that for some people can be the good motive but as we know that led to actually a worsening of the problem if, if a terminal illness is a problem an easy solution to the problem is euthanasia if a difficult pregnancy is a problem an easy solution is abortion so we have to reject that way of thinking of, of suffering as a problem it is a mystery so it is something that uh, we cannot understand fully and if we try to if we try to explain it away we actually end up causing more harm a basic principle in, a, in our faith Is that God came into the world and took on every form of human suffering, every form of human suffering. In His temptations, He encountered in summary uh, form every temptation that that we encounter. In His passion, He encountered physical suffering, mental suffering, spiritual suffering, psychological, uh, the suffering of even feeling forsaken, the suffering of being abandoned by His friends, and worse than we have felt it (laughs) because his intellect is keener his soul is much more sensitive we don't suffer as much because we are callous (laughs) because of our sin we build up spiritual calluses Uh, we are not as sensitive to the evil and the suffering that's in the world as the one who is true God and true man is is sensitive so to one who is suffering I, I think speaking of our Lord's, uh, our Lord's suffering, and uh, this, is why, this is why crucifix is so important to have and to look upon and say, say he, he is with me in this and I am with him. Matthew 25, what happens there? Our Lord identifies himself with those who suffer. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink and so on. He has a special affection for those who suffer because any suffering that's in the world whether it's physical, psychological, mental, any suffering that's in the world is in the world because of sin, you know, not that person's sin, but because of original sin principally, but then also by the the sins that make up a wounded society. Uh, And our Lord identifies with those who suffer because he himself suffered the full consequences of sin. We suffer them partially, he suffered them fully. And so again, going to him in his suffering, and speaking to him there, I think this this is one of the greatest things that we can do for those who um, who are suffering.
1: We've got our last question right here with Duke. Easter
2: and Holy Week are unique in being mobile feasts. You know, Christmas, December the 25th, you know, and all of that. But it's tied in, as I understand it, that Easter is the first Sunday after the spring full moon or something. Can you explain a little more, you know, why that why the, we, that's a movable feast and how it's tied into spring and the first full moon? You know, the first because, because it has to because it has to do with the Passover and that's how the Jews gauged Passovers. You answered Passover. the question. There okay. you go. Yeah. That's it. Thank you. Right. <laughs> Was that right? Yes. Okay. Father, thank you so much for being Good. so generous with your time. Conclude with a blessing. Yes, here? please. Okay. <laughs> The Lord be with you through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary and of Saint Joseph may the blessing of Almighty God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever amen Amen. go in peace
0: we hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture if you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work